The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 109 to the chief musician, a psalm of David. Do not keep silent, O God of my praise, for the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful have opened against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They have also surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without a cause. In return for my love, they are my accusers, but I give myself to prayer. Thus they have rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. Set a wicked man over him and let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him be found guilty and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few and let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Let his children continually be vagabonds and beg Let them seek their bread also from their desolate places. Let the creditor seize all that he has and let strangers plunder his labor. Let there be none to extend mercy to him, nor let there be any to favor his fatherless children. Let his posterity be cut off and in the generation following, let their name be blotted out. Let the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be continually before the Lord, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. Because he did not remember to show mercy, but persecuted the poor and needy man, that he might even slay the broken in heart. As he loved cursing, so let it come to him. As he did not delight in blessing, so let it be far from him. As he clothed himself with cursing as with a garment, so let it enter his body like water and like oil into his bones." Let it be to him like the garment which covers him, and for a belt with which he girds himself continually. Let this be the Lord's reward to my accusers, and to those who speak evil against my person. But you, O God the Lord, deal with me for your name's sake, because your mercy is good, deliver me. For I am poor and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. I am gone like a shadow when it lengthens. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting, and my flesh is feeble from lack of fatness. I also have become a reproach to them. When they look at me, they shake their heads. Help me, O Lord my God. O save me according to your mercy, that they may know that this is your hand, that you, Lord, have done it. Let them curse, but you bless. When they arise, let them be ashamed, but let your servant rejoice." Let my accusers be clothed with shame and let them cover themselves with their own disgrace as with a mantle. Okay, we are in Deuteronomy 31 still. It's verses 9 through 13 today. This is entitled, So Moses Wrote This Law. Verse 9, So Moses wrote this law and delivered it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And to all the elders of Israel, and Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, at the appointed time in the year of release, at the Feast of Tabernacles, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Gather the people together, men and women and little ones, and the stranger who is within your gates, that they may hear, and that they may learn to fear the Lord your God, and carefully observe all the words of this law, and that their children, who have not known it, may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, as long as you live in the land which you cross the Jordan to possess. I don't want to put up a mental wall around you even before we start today, but I want you to know that some of the things that are in this sermon are on a level of 8 or 9 out of 10 in regard to being complicated. So, If you feel like you have no idea what I was talking about during the sermon when you go home, don't feel bad. It is just plain complicated. There is some speculation about the order of things in the passage today, as well as the meaning of what is said. 
In verse 9, it will speak of Moses writing out the law and then giving it to the priests and the elders. And yet, it will say in verses 24 through 26 that Moses will write the words of the law in a book and it will be presented to the priests. As you will see, there are a wide variety of opinions as to what each of these things means. The fact is that the intent is often difficult and one view seems as right as another. It would be easy to just go with whichever and type up a sermon for you but it would also mean that I took the expedient path without thinking through what might actually be one thing rather than the other. But I could not live with that. And so, like in many sermons, I found myself talking out loud to the Lord. What are you telling us here, Lord? I don't want to be wrong in this. What if what I type up is wrong? That worries me. Our text verse comes from James 3. It is verses 1 and 2. My brethren... Let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment, for we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. The reason these things worry me is not merely because I may be wrong. I have read Deuteronomy 31 many times in my life. When reading it, my mind, like yours when you read a passage, makes an evaluation of what is presented. And then a conclusion is made. This is how we do things. If you watch Perry Mason, you will begin to guess who the guilty party is in the case being presented. I can tell you last night I was wrong because we watch one every night. Your mind forms a conclusion and you wait to see if you are right or not. At the end, the true perpetrator of the crime is revealed and you say, aha, I was right. Or you might say, I never thought of that. Or, oh, I should have known. Nothing was lost in your incorrect guess, and you simply file away what you know now is right. During my times of reading Deuteronomy 31, or any passage of Scripture, I have made my conclusions and gone on from there without giving it much more thought. If I was wrong, it really wouldn't make that much difference. Someday the correct analysis will be made known, and I might say, oh, I never thought of that. But there was no wrongdoing to be held accountable for. However, Something different comes about when a person evaluates a passage and then presents it to others, doesn't it? All of a sudden, he becomes a teacher of the law, and we know what James says about that. I am truly concerned that an evaluation of something as basic and seemingly unimportant as the various interpretations of what the meaning of the law is, or what the meaning of he delivered is, it suddenly takes on a great deal of importance because I am now instructing you. If I am wrong, I bear the guilt of my misinstruction of this precious word. Two things bother me, and they happen quite often. The first is when someone emails me and tells me I'm wrong in something I presented when it is obvious that that person has no idea what he is talking about. I find it distasteful because he hasn't even taken the time to try to figure out what he is claiming. He's just spouting off what he heard without checking out what he is saying. It happened to me this past Monday. He is a time waster who hasn't taken the time to figure out what he is wasting my time over. The second thing that really bothers me is when someone emails me with something I have said and he is right and I was wrong. That doesn't bother me because I was wrong and, oh, now I look so stupid. It bothers me because I was wrong concerning God's word. It eats me up and it terrifies me. Thank God for his grace towards my incompetence in presenting his word. Otherwise, there would truly be no hope left at all. Let us remember to handle this word carefully. There is a point where we simply have to decide and go on, but we should do so by telling people what options may be correct when we do, or at least admitting that we might not be right. The word is too precious to do otherwise. Marvelous and beautiful things are to be found in his superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got a couple of thoughts for you today. The first is at the end of every seven years. It's verses 9 through 11. Verse 9, so Moses wrote this law, Ve'yiktov Moshe et ha-Torah hazot, and wrote Moses the Torah, the this. 
The debate over the meaning of this goes on and on. Is it speaking of Deuteronomy only? Is it referring to the commandments, the blessings, and the curses only? Is it referring to the civil law of Leviticus and Deuteronomy only? And so on. What seems clear is that what it is referring to is the same thing that was spoken of in the law of the king in Deuteronomy 17. That says there in Deuteronomy 17:18. also it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priests, the Levites. That this is speaking of the same thing is obvious for several reasons. It is a copy of the same law now being given again, which is described. It is the law that will be given to the priests, the Levites, who are responsible for bearing the ark. And it is the law that is also given to the elders of Israel. The instruction for these various people is scattered throughout Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The king himself was to make a copy of the law. As such, it certainly does not mean only the book of Deuteronomy, but rather the entire Torah, meaning the five books of Moses. The king was to be trained in the creation, the history of sin, the anticipation of the Messiah, the call of the patriarchs, the bondage of his people, their redemption from Egypt, the giving of the law, the turning of their hearts away from the Lord, of the Lord's faithfulness to them in punishment the anticipated establishment of them in the land, and even the prophecy of the Song of Moses that calls attention to both heaven and earth of the future apostasy of Israel. With the end of Moses' instruction now being anticipated, this note is given to show that the law is complete and it is being presented to the proper authorities who will continue to lead the people in their various capacities. As such, it next says, verse 9 continuing, and delivered it to the priests, the sons of Levi, and gave unto the priests, sons Levi. The meaning here does not have to be, and he handed the scroll to them. Rather than the physical book itself, this is more probable a way of saying Moses wrote the words of this law and then read it to the priests, the sons of Levi. The giving is then a formal reading forth of it to them as instruction. This is then in contrast to what will be done in verses 24 through 26, where the written law is then given into the custody of the priests. It is these priests, verse 9 continues, who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord. A verb here stands as a noun, ha noseim et aron berit Yehovah, the bearer's ark covenant Yehovah. The reason for including these words is that the ark is where the tablets of the law, the basis for the law of Moses, were placed. The ark in every single detail, if you watch those Exodus sermons, you'll know this, points to the work of Jesus Christ and to his person. He is the embodiment of the law contained within them. The priests, signifying the mediatorial role of the law, bear the law in this regard. Their duties anticipate the coming of Christ as well. Thus, the instruction of the law being given to them is so that they will faithfully execute their duties until the time when their duties were to come to an end with the coming of the Messiah. But others had duties as well. Verse 9 continues, and to all the elders of Israel. Again and again in Deuteronomy, the elders were singled out to make judgments for the people in the gates of the city. And as with the priests, their duties and judgments under the law were anticipatory of the coming of Christ. They were instructed by Moses until the time when their duties, too, would end with the coming of Messiah. They are now being given this instruction, and it was probably accompanied by their questions asking for clarification and Moses then explaining those things so that no misunderstandings of the law would arise. And the reason why I say that is because we've been going through the law now for about 10 years. And questions constantly arise. It is very complicated. Well, imagine being there and sitting there, hearing Moses read it to you, and you got a question, and you have no idea what he's talking about. He's got to sit there and explain it to him, because there can be no ambiguities and no misunderstandings when they are given this law to perform, okay? So, Moses is then explaining those things so that no misunderstandings of the law would arise. This seems not just likely, but probable. The reason for this is seen in the next words. Verse 10, And Moses commanded them, saying, 
These words really seem to indicate that what is given to the priests and elders in the previous verse is an oral instruction in the law. Rather than him handing the writings to them, the command is to them in the plural. He is speaking to a group. In his oral instruction, he continues his dialogue with these words. Verse 10 continues. At the end of every seven years, miketz sheva shanim, from extremity, seven years. The meaning of end or extremity is not after seven years, but the end of the seven-year cycle, meaning the seventh year is what is being discussed. This was seen in Leviticus. It is not seven and then, but six and then. Each six-year period is followed by a special one-year time of remission. This is the same idea as the year of the tithe, which was not three and then, but two and then. In the seventh year, verse 10 continues, at the appointed time in the year of release, this particular event was carefully explained in Deuteronomy 15. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release of debts. And this is the form of the release. Every creditor who has lent anything to his neighbor shall release it. He shall not require it of his neighbor or his brother because it is called the Lord's release. This was the set time known as the Shemitah or release. It would correspond also to the Sabbath year of rest for the land as detailed in Leviticus 24. To get a fuller understanding of what the year of release details and how it anticipated Christ, I mean completely, you can go back and watch that sermon. It, as noted then when I gave that sermon, it has nothing to do with the false teaching of certain people concerning events in the world today. It was solely given in anticipation of Christ, and the precept of the law is fulfilled and ended in Christ. For now, Moses further defines the set time frame that he will provide instruction on, saying, verse 10 continues, at the Feast of Tabernacles, Bechag HaSukot, in feast, the tabernacles. Tabernacles was one of the three pilgrim feasts. It occurred in the fall time of the year, and it was the last event of the original festal year set forth by the Lord in Leviticus 23. The pilgrim feasts specifically anticipate life in Christ. This is explained in the Leviticus 23 series. If you didn't see it, it would be worth your time to go back and watch them. There is the work of the Lord revealed in the feasts, and there is life in the Lord detailed in the Chag, or pilgrim feasts. Thus, what Moses is to describe is set forth to close out this festal year, the year of Sabbath of the land, and the year of release in regard to redemptive events. All of the men of Israel, inclusive of all in their families, their servants, the Levites, and the strangers within their gates, were to attend the feast and rejoice in the presence of the Lord. None were to be excluded. That continues to be seen in the next words, verse 11, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God. The Hebrew is more expressive. Bebo kal Yisrael le raot et pene Yehovah Elohecha. Incoming all Israel to see face Yehovah your singular God. Moses changes in the middle of the thought to the singular. From speaking to them to your singular God. The curious change will be looked at in a minute, and I'll give you a hint on next week's sermon. It happens again and again and again in the verses next week. And not only does it happen, but almost every single translation, almost every one of them does not follow the Hebrew, and you're getting a false idea of what God is presenting. And it's, it's a serious matter, okay? Even Young's, which I'll mention next week, which always gets it right, got it wrong in verse 20, of this chapter of Deuteronomy. So it's a very precise chapter. It's very interesting. For now, all of Israel was to come before the Lord at the pilgrim feasts. There, they were to rejoice and be thankful for all the Lord provided for them. None was to be in mourning, but rather all were to be filled with gladness as they sought out the face of the Lord. Do you remember that? It was a command. You shall rejoice. If you're not going to rejoice, don't show up here. Verse 11 continues, in the place which he chooses this is wherever the tabernacle or later the temple was located, where the Lord rested and where the altar of sacrifice was, that is considered the place which the Lord has chosen. Verse 11 continues, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Tikra et hazot neged kal Yisrael be 
you, singular, shall read the Torah, the this, before all Israel in their ears. The singular continues, and so this could be taken in various ways. Maybe the simplest solution, I don't know, I'm just guessing here, is that Moses spoke to all of them, but now he is speaking directly to Joshua. As the leader, he represents the whole. This is possible because it is Joshua, as the leader, who first read the law to the people. That is recorded in Joshua chapter 8. Then all Israel, with their elders and officers and judges, stood on either side of the ark before the priests, the Levites, who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord. The stranger as well, as he who was born among them. Half of them were in front of Mount Gerizim, and half of them in front of Mount Evol. As Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded before, that they should bless the people of Israel. And afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curses, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, with the women, the little ones, and the strangers who were living among them. If this is so, and if this account in Joshua is in fulfillment of the command of Moses now, it then brings in more to consider. The account in Joshua does not tell when the event occurred. On a cursory reading, one would think it happened right after the destruction of Ai, not long after the people entered the land. But the timing is not given. It could be that it actually occurred after the land is subdued years and years later. If so, then the account in Joshua is not chronologically placed. If that is the case, it is placed there to show obedience to the command concerning having done it at the earliest time of convenience. Regardless of that, the fact that Joshua read the law to the people may explain the changes from the plural to the singular. The leader of the people, in this case Joshua, is given the charge to read the words of law to all of Israel. An obvious question arises, and which is highly debated, is, does this refer only to Deuteronomy, or does it refer to the entire Torah, meaning the five books of Moses? The fulfillment of this is not only seen in Joshua, where the answer cannot be fully known, but the same reading is also noted in Nehemiah chapter 8. Before reading that, I have to tell you that the study for this question that I just asked meaning to just figure out for you whether all of the Torah is read or just the book of Deuteronomy took on such a point of difficulty that several hours were spent on it. That one question. The study became one of the most complicated that I have faced in the book of Deuteronomy, and I cannot give you a full and complete answer to the question. Rather, I can only tell you that trying to figure it out opened up a can of worms that is problematic. It may even be tedious to you unless you really want to know what the intricacies of what is involved in what I will explain. I emailed Sergio to get help, and he gave me his thoughts. But what is said in Nehemiah becomes so complicated that I hope you can follow along without getting lost. But it is important. This is what it says there, starting at the beginning of the chapter. From Nehemiah 8, Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. The first thing to note in these words of Nehemiah is that the first day of the seventh month is not the feast of tabernacles. Tabernacles doesn't begin until the 15th day of the month. But what is being described here is clearly a pilgrim feast. The people were not required to gather before the Lord on the first of the month, even the first of the seventh month, which is the special day known as Yom Teruah, which is described in Leviticus 23. Therefore, the words of Nehemiah 8.2 may not be referring at all to the first day of the month. Do you remember me asking you this, Sergio? As one would initially think. And as all translations, every single translation makes clear, but rather to day one of the Feast of Tabernacles. The Hebrew reads plainly, Be'yom echad la'kodesh ha'shevi, in day one, two month, the seventh. Any reasonable translation of this would be on the first day of the seventh month. 
Even the Greek agrees with this. And that very well may be what is meant. However, a reasonable translation does not necessarily mean a scholarly one. The work of translators should rely on scholars, but it does not necessarily need to do so. If this is actually referring to the Feast of Tabernacles, as I think it does, then an inference must be made and inserted into the verse for clarity, as happens many times in Bible translations. Here's what I would suggest to you, and this is what I had to have Sergio confirm by doing a search on all of the Hebrew throughout the Old Testament, which he did. In day one of the Feast of, inserting those words, the seventh month, only this would bring the actions of Ezra and the people to align with the words of Moses now. If so, then this is the first day of the Chag, or feast, that is celebrated in the seventh month. That is what is being referred to. This seems confirmed later in the chapter. Here's what it says, just a few verses down. Now on the second day, the heads of the father's houses of all of the people with the priests and Levites were gathered to Ezra the scribe in order to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should announce and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the mountain and bring olive branches, branches of oil trees, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of leafy trees to make booths as it is written. This seems to be clearly speaking of the second day of the same event introduced in Nehemiah 8, 1 and 2. And more, it is clearly speaking of the Feast of Tabernacles as such. And with that in mind, the chapter then closes out with these words, still speaking of the same Feast of Tabernacles, which Moses now refers to. It says, also day by day, from the first day until the last day. Well, the chapter began with the first day, in the middle of it, it says the second day, and now at the end of the chapter, it says the first day until the last day. So it appears to be speaking of one thing only, the Feast of Tabernacles. From the first day until the last day, he read from the book of the law of God, and they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner. This, though complicated, is important because it changes the dynamics of many things evaluated by many people over the years, including me. But more, it demonstrates that though being a priest and a scribe of the law, Ezra did not know the law as well as he should have. If he only realized that they were to build booths during the second day of reading, then they were already in violation of the law. Here's what it says in Leviticus 23. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. To find something in the law means that he did not know it was there to be found. Either way, the first day of the seventh month or day one of the feast of the seventh month, Ezra was unaware of the requirements of the law that had been entrusted to him as a priest. Despite these things, which seems like a complete misdirection from the passage we are dealing with in Deuteronomy, the words that are cited concerning the building of booths are found only in Leviticus 23, not in Deuteronomy. Moses does instruct the people to observe tabernacles in Deuteronomy 16 and again in chapter 31. But the instructions referring to what they were to do are found not in Deuteronomy, but in Leviticus 23. And so what this means must, again, be speculated on. Was only Deuteronomy read, as many assume? If so, then referring to Leviticus by Ezra does not indicate that the whole law was read, but that they didn't know how to observe the feast, and thus they went to Leviticus and only found it then. Or it may mean that all of the books of Moses were read in part or in whole. If in whole, at least from reading them in English, it takes about three and a half hours to read Genesis, three hours to read Exodus, two hours to read Leviticus, two and a half hours to read Numbers, and two and a half hours to read Deuteronomy. In total, it comes to plus or minus 13 and a half hours. That could easily be read in the seven days of the Feast of Tabernacles. No matter what, Ezra, the priest, and the scribe was not versed in what to do in matters of his own law. 
having seen this same type of a lack of knowledge recorded in Nehemiah before in our Deuteronomy sermons, it shows that the people who returned from exile had largely forgotten what was required of them, or they were entirely unaware of a proper reading of the law. Nehemiah is a historical account of what occurred. It is given to show the state of the people before the Lord, not that they were right before the Lord, as many in the book were not right before the Lord, nor that the men who are highlighted in the books were infallible in their theology. On the contrary, we see quite clearly that they were not. The errors in thinking and in theology concerning them are carefully recorded right in the narrative. But this lack of knowledge concerning the law continues on with the rabbis to this very day. Despite making convincing arguments concerning the law, they really have no idea, for the most part, what they are talking about. Without seeing Christ as the fulfillment of Scripture, they are blinded to the importance of this word that sets before them as they read. With this complicated evaluation now behind us, Moses will continue on. We are here in your presence, dwelling in temporary tabernacles, and we are rejoicing in all that you have done for us. A fire inside to warm us as each ember burns and crackles. We are safely secure as we await the Lord Jesus. Oh, to dwell in our eternal home, for this we long. May that day be soon, but we will rejoice until then. Hear our praises, hear our joyous song, coming forth from the lips of your redeemed among men. Thank you for our great hope and the peace it does provide. Thank you for the surety we have in Christ Jesus. In his hope we now patiently abide, anticipating all that he has prepared for each of us. Now, I typed that a long time ago, but it applies to Lynn today, doesn't it? Our second thought. As long as you live in the land, verses 12 and 13. Verse 12, gather the people together. The verb is singular and imperative, you gather the people. All of the people of the land, all of Israel, of verse 11, were to be assembled in the presence of the Lord during this pilgrim feast in the seventh month, but more especially in the seventh year of the sabbatical cycle in the time of the release. This was to include, verse 12 continues, men and women and little ones and the stranger who is within your gates. Important articles have been left out of the translation, and another was incorrectly added in. It reads, the men and the women and the little ones and your singular stranger who is within your singular gates. The wording is very specific to ensure that no person was to be excluded. Every single person was to be assembled and in attendance. This special assembly was not without a set purpose as well. It is so, verse 12 continues, that they may hear and that they may learn to fear the Lord your God. Yishmeru ule ma'an yilmedu ve'yareu et Yehovah Elohechem. They may hear and to end purpose, they may learn and to fear Yehovah, your plural God. This is the end purpose of the reading of the law every seven years. It was for the people to clearly hear it read, which then had a dual purpose. They would, one, learn what they were to do, and two, they were also to fear the Lord. The switch to the plural, the Lord your plural God, seems to indicate that Moses has been speaking all along directly to Joshua, but then one can imagine him opening his arms wide to the priests and the elders there before him and saying these words to all of them. With that stated, he adds on a third purpose. Verse 12 continues, and carefully observe all the words of this law. And they keep to do all the words, the Torah, the this. The people cannot keep and do what they do not know. But that is what the agreement to the covenant is conditioned upon. It isn't just a document that they are to know, which even Ezra was unaware of points within it, but it is a law that was to be known and to be observed. Hence, when Ezra and those with him found out what to do while reading the law, they set about to keep and to do what they had discovered. It should be noted now that this was a perfect time for the reading of the law. They were in the sabbatical year where the land was to lie fallow. They were in the year of release where all debts were forgiven. 
as such, this would have been the most carefree period of their lives. And so to hear the law read would not be accompanied by the thought of owing people money, harvesting the crops that had been sown, and so on. It would be somewhat like what was lost in Eden. There were no debts of sin because the Day of Atonement had just been observed. There was no labor and toil of the land because that came only after the fall, and so on. There was really nothing to bog down their minds, and they could focus on being pleasing to the Lord. But the Feast of Tabernacles was only anticipatory of believers' lives in Christ. Does anybody remember that from that sermon? The Feast of Tabernacles only pictures our lives in Christ. Nobody got it. Okay, go back and watch those sermons again. We are dwelling in our tents, our tabernacles, saved by the Lord and guaranteed a place in heaven at the restoration of all things. We should, for all intents and purposes, have our minds focused on what the Lord has done for us in fulfilling the law. It is he who kept and did all of the words of the Torah. We are the benefactors of his time tabernacling among us. From that understanding, we should be without the cares of this world when we contemplate and understand the glory of the next. We should be in a constant state of rejoicing before the Lord, at least That is what we should be doing. He has paved the way that lies before us. That should be our source of joy and rejoicing. That then leads to what is next stated by Moses, verse 13, and that their children who have not known it. It should say, and their children who have not known. The word it should be italicized or better, it should be just left out. It speaks of their lack of knowledge concerning what is the law in general. The words themselves are speaking of those born within the past seven years, when the next time for the full reading of the law, which I would argue is the entire five books of Moses, when that time arrived, those who had never heard it or who had still been infants when it was first read to them would begin to grasp and understand the magnificence of what the Lord had done for them as a people. They would hear of creation, the fall, and the exile. They would hear of the flood and the ark of Noah. They would hear of the mercy of God upon Noah and his family, the cursing of Canaan, the call of Abraham, the stories of Ishmael and Isaac, of the deceit of Jacob, and on and on. It's hard to imagine that these things would be left out of the reading of these seven days. Instead, they would be a central part of captivating the young minds, of explaining to them why sin is in the world, in helping to understand the glories hidden behind the walls of the tabernacle or temple, and so on. Just think of it. Little children hearing these words read, and they're, they're getting bored, and all of a sudden it says, inside of the tabernacle there's gold, and there's an ark, and here's what it looks like, and only the priests can go in, and only once a year into the Holy of Holies. All of these things, these little minds would start hearing, and they'd say, oh, Isaac, you know, he did this, and Jacob did that, and it would be just like story time to him. And in seven years, what would they want to do? They'd want to hear it all over again. Why would that be left out of this reading? No way. Without hearing these things read to them, they would have a complete void in what their calling as a people was. But in hearing them, they would begin to understand the importance of what it meant to be an Israelite. Everything about their lives, their cultures, the restrictions, and their allowances would make proper sense to them. As such, these young minds would have the words read to them so that they, verse 13 continues, may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. The words continue to refer to the children. They cannot fear the Lord if they remain unaware of the words of the law. This is the purpose of knowing the law. The children are to be brought up hearing the words which will then bring them to a fear of who the Lord is, what he is capable of, and to then trust that he is worthy of their attention at all times. And this is to be, verse 13 continues, as long as you live in the land. All the days which you, plural, all of you, live upon the ground. Moses continues to address all of the elders. But because the words are recorded in the Torah, his words are inclusive of all who hear them. The change between the singular and the plural is purposeful. 
as Moses thinks out his words carefully. The people occupied the ground beneath their feet, and they are admonished to continue with this practice, inclusive of even the youngest children. All their days upon the ground, verse 13 finishes with, which you crossed the Jordan to possess. Ashur atem uberim et hayarden shama leirishta, which you all crossing over the Jordan there to possess. The priests and the elders of verse 9 are being addressed, but they represent the congregation. Therefore, what Moses says to them applies to all of the people. The people are to attend to the words of the Lord, to do them, to fear the Lord, and to be observant of everything this law proclaims. This is the charge set before them, inclusive in those words of law, are further instructions concerning the law from Deuteronomy 6. And these words, which I command you today, shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. In other words, in the charge of Moses here in Deuteronomy 31, there is the continued charge of Deuteronomy 6. The law was not just a thing to hear and to do, but to hear and to live out continuously and to share continuously. To not do so is to not live out the law as instructed by Moses now. As such, the law was to be a part of every aspect of the person's life at every moment of his existence. It shows the utter impossibility that it could ever be perfectly lived out by fallen man. The words of this verse pretty much close out the actual instruction of the law of Moses by Moses to the people. Everything after this point deals with addendums to the instruction to the people and other matters that are for all to know, even if they are not things the people are actually to do. This includes the song of Moses and the blessings of Moses upon the people. As such, the instruction concerning the reading of the law at the Feast of Tabernacles holds a particular point of importance, and it is thus a point that we should carefully reflect on. As it is a pilgrim feast, and as it anticipates the life of the believer in Christ, we should look at it in this light. We are to remember what Christ did. It is he who fulfilled the law, and it is he who made our access into the land of promise possible. If Israel's fulfillment of the law was necessary for the world to be reconciled to God, we would all be chucked into the lake of fire on Judgment Day, every single one of us. But God knew this, and he gave us the lesson of the law to help us appreciate the enormity of what he did in Christ when he reconciled the world to himself. We, because of what he did, are living out our pilgrim feast and we are awaiting the realization of the promise that was obtained when we crossed over the Jordan and into God's rest through a simple act of faith in what he has done. This is what Paul refers to in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, our tabernacle, our dwelling now is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent, this tabernacle, this dwelling, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has also given us the Spirit as a guarantee. We are dwelling in tents and waiting on what lies ahead. And as a surety that it will be received, Paul says God has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. The Spirit is given by an act of faith. Nothing else will obtain it. No work can procure it. And once it is received, it can never, never be taken away. Have faith in Christ believe the gospel, and begin your true pilgrim feast, your Feast of Tabernacles, today. And once you enter in, be sure to thank God for the giving of his Son, who did what Israel could not do. Yes, thank God that Christ Jesus has fulfilled the law and set it aside for all who come to him by faith. What a marvelous thing God has done for us. The whole point of every single thing we have seen from Genesis 1-1 even to today, which is what Deuteronomy 31 verse 13 is where we're stopping off today. The whole point of everything is Jesus. 
every single thing that we have seen points to him in one way or another. Every story, every measurement, every color, every metal, everything, everything points to Jesus because God keeps wanting us to stay awake while we read the Bible. How does this point to Jesus? What is this saying about Jesus? And it's all there if you'll just simply pay attention. And the reason why he's doing this is because he wants you to understand that it's not about you. If it's all about Jesus and it has nothing to do with you except in your reception of it. We were talking today before we got started about the Hebrew Roots Movement. It goes all the way back even to the 30s, the Church of God, Armstrong, all of those heretics. And they're all telling you, you got to observe the law of Moses. Let me tell you what, just read the book of Galatians once, just once. And I don't know how anybody could come to that conclusion. How can you do it? But it's explicit in the book of Hebrews. It's explicit several times. It's implicit at least 20 more times. The law is annulled. It is obsolete. It is set aside. Hebrews 7.13, Hebrews 8.13, 7.18, 8.13, go read them today. It's done. Paul says that the law is nailed to the cross. Colossians 2.14. Nobody walked up to the cross like the Dorit Wittenberg and nailed it to the cross. That didn't happen. The law is embodied by Christ. Christ died on the cross. He was nailed to the cross. He is the embodiment of the law, and when he died, the law died with him. That is what the Bible teaches, okay? Reinserting the law of Moses is only going to bring one thing. It begins with a C, it ends with an N, and in the middle it is it says omnendation, okay? Condemnation, that's all you're going to get from the law of Moses. You cannot be saved by adherence to the law. You can be saved by trusting that Christ has already done it for you. So please put your hope in Jesus Christ. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. It's so simple. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. Christ died for your sins, meaning you're a sinner. Christ was buried, meaning he was really dead. Christ rose again, meaning he had no sin of his own. If he died for your sins and he became sin, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, that means that our sin is still in the grave. Because if our sin was still attached to him, he wouldn't have come out of the grave. Amen. Christ. It is all about Jesus Christ. Please trust him today. Put away your deeds of the law, which will only find you swimming forever in the lake of fire. Come to Christ. Okay, our closing verse. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6 through 8. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased to be absent from the body and be present with the Lord. And as Lynn's sister said to me on the phone yesterday, I'm jealous of him. He's passed away. She's stuck here still today. Someday we're all going to be with the Lord in his presence. But right now, what's that? With new bodies. With new bodies. Yes, thank God for that, because I don't want this one. <laughs> I'll finally be handsome. <laughs> A beard. Yeah, beards are nice. I got to admit, I hope I can have a beard in heaven, but we'll see what he has for us. Okay. Yeah, no shoes. No, we don't do shoes here. I'm sorry. Next week is Deuteronomy 31, 14 through 21. As I said, it's, it's not a complicated sermon like today's was, but it has every single translation that I read, like 26 of them. Every one of them was wrong in how they treat the pronouns. And with that, you will get a faulty sense of what God is trying to tell us. And it's a very, very simple message if you just pay attention next week. But I'll give you a hint. God does not change. God will never revoke his covenant with you. That's the lesson that this is telling. And by having the pronouns wrong, you could get that impression. Next week, God is faithful. It will stand forever as the Lord to Moses does tell. It's entitled, A Witness for Me Against the Children of Israel. That'll be our 91st Deuteronomy sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. But he also has expectations of you as he prepares you for entrance into his land of promise. And so follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? All right, I got a question for you. We'll see. I got a couple of postcards. One this week, one next week. They came from Israel. We had some friends that are visiting from Israel. 
I bet you can't guess who. And they brought one, Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, and Qumran Cave Number 4. So you get one of these if you get today's question right. And I don't think you will. Somebody will get it. Okay, today we saw that the people were to have the law read in their ears, okay? The same idiom is mentioned many times in the New Testament, your ears, okay? Finish this unique verse. It's the only time he specifically says this, so you should be able to do it. Finish this unique verse from the book of Luke. Let these words sink down into your ears. It came to mind immediately with me. For the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of man. I thought one of you would get that. We got that. What? It was right on the tip of her tongue, she said. I'm sorry, you don't get one of these for having it on the tip of your tongue. It has to leave the tongue. Okay, maybe next week, folks. All right, I got a poem and we'll be done. So Moses wrote this law. So Moses wrote this law and delivered it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel, each and every guy. And Moses commanded them, saying, at the end of every seven years, this you shall do. At the appointed time in the year of release, at the Feast of Tabernacles, as I am instructing you, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God, in the place which he chooses, it shall be. You shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing, just as is now instructed by me. Gather the people together, men and women and little ones, and the stranger who is within your gates, whether young man or grandpa, that they may hear and that they may learn to fear the Lord your God and carefully observe all the words of this law, and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear as to you I now address the Lord your God as long as you live in the land which you crossed the Jordan to possess. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful word, this beautiful word which you have given us. And thank you that it's not easy to figure out because if it was, we'd get jaded and tired very quickly and we'd just be on to the next new thing. But there's enough in your word to keep the people that want to know your word busy for hours and hours, even on single verses. You were so good to us in that regard. Yes, it's complicated at times, but the, the, the basic message is so simple, a little child can get it. We're sinners. We need a Savior. Jesus came. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord, who did this for us, even us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.